Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Today in How We Got the Bible, we're continuing on in our quest to understand the sources for the Hebrew Bible. We've already covered the Masoretic Text and the Dead Sea Scrolls, but we have one last important Hebrew source to look at before surveying several significant ancient translations. As it turns out, the Samaritans have their own Hebrew version of the Torah, commonly called the Samaritan Pentateuch. In this episode, you'll learn about the Samaritan Pentateuch and why scholars take it more seriously today than they did in previous centuries. We'll also consider very important ancient translations of the Tanakh in Greek, Aramaic, Syriac, and Latin. Here now is episode 332, Bible Part 3, our Bible class Part 3, Samaritan Pentateuch and Ancient Translations. We've looked at the Hebrew Masoretic text, we've looked at the earliest Hebrew texts like the Dead Sea Scrolls, and we saw that there were several different text types. One was the Masoretic text, or what they call the Proto-Masoretic text. The second was a grouping of texts that were in agreement with the Samaritan Pentateuch, which we're going to talk about in just a little bit here. Uh, those that we typically call the pre-Samaritan Dead Sea Scroll texts. And then we have other Dead Sea Scroll texts that agree with the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation that we're going to be looking at in just a little while here. A little review on the Masoretic text. These are the manuscripts that were copied by professional scribes in different locations called the Masoretes. They have incredible accuracy and the great majority of the Dead Sea Scrolls agree with these medieval Masoretic manuscripts. Uh, of course, Leningrad is very famous. That's the one that is the first complete Old Testament on which most of our English Bibles are based. And then Aleppo, I also covered, is a very highly accurate Masoretic text, considered to be the most trustworthy as far as uh, getting everything exact. And that was endorsed in the Middle Ages by a famous Jewish scholar named Maimonides. So this is what we have. This is what virtually all our English Bibles have traditionally been based on until the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which changed a lot of things. I thought it would be good if we took a moment and just see how do, how do Jewish people, t even to this day, how do they regard the Torah? How do they regard the Old Testament? How do they read it? What do they think about it? So I wanted to play out for you this video here. <laughs> So we saw in that video was just the incredible chanting of scripture that is done even to this day. I mean, this is such an ancient practice that many of us Christians are totally unfamiliar with, but there is, there is this incredible respect for Scripture that the Jewish people retain to this day. Uh, they dress up their Torah scroll in a, a, a crown on top of it. They put a cover over it. It's something that costs thousands of dollars, 
All Torah scrolls to this very day are hand copied by professional scribes still, and they are, uh, when they are read aloud, there are correctors on either side of the person so that if the reader makes a mistake, a correction will be made immediately. When, I already mentioned this in the past, but when the scroll wears out, it's ceremonially buried. I mean, it's like they treat these scrolls as if they're alive. That's the regard that they have to this day for Scripture. And I think as Christians, we have a lot to learn from this. We tend to be the ones that just drop our Bibles on the ground and throw them around. It's like, oh, it's just another Bible. You know, the Gideons put all these Bibles all over the hotels. It's like just an object to be thrown around, considered cheap or whatever. Not in the Jewish tradition. So I think there is something to be learned from that. Here's another video of somebody chanting and singing the Shema, one of the most sacred statements of all Scripture where it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Shema Yisrael, That's not your musical genre, but you can't help but recognize the incredible awe that these people have for Scripture. And uh, I think it's just really such a beautiful thing. Uh, so what we're going to do now is we're going to transition and start talking about the Samaritans. Uh, the Samaritans you've encountered before in the New Testament. And we see Jesus talking to the woman at the well. There was a time when Jesus' disciples were denied hospitality by the Samaritans. And they asked Jesus, do you think we should call fire down from heaven to destroy them? And Jesus rebuked them and told them, no, we should not call fire down from heaven and burn up the Samaritans because they weren't willing to show us hospitality. Uh, well, in that incident in the Gospels, when that happens, the reason why is because they were Jews on their way to worship at the temple in Jerusalem, and the Samaritans believe that the temple should be at Mount Gerizim, a different location. So we see a little bit about this in Scripture, but the Samaritans didn't go anywhere after the time of the New Testament. In fact, Samaritans are still alive, and they still have multiple communities, and they're still carrying on with the same practices that they've always had. So uh, I don't know if you've ever heard this saying, it's... it's not all that common, but God gave the Christians Mormons so that the Christians would understand how the Jews feel. Uh, I don't know if you ever heard that saying, but it's an interesting saying because the, the Christians, you know, we have our Bible, but then the Mormons have our Bible plus another Bible, the Book of Mormon, and it's sort of like how the Jews feel about the Christians because the Jews have their Bible and we Christians have their Bible plus, then we also have the New Testament. 
We see the Samaritans believe in the Torah, and this is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And that's it. That's their whole Bible. Then we have the Jews, who also have the Nevi'im and the Ketuvim, also called the Prophets and the Writings. And uh, together, these three sections make up the Tanakh, also called the Hebrew Bible, or we Christians refer to this as the Old Testament altogether. And then Christians add to that collection the New Testament. Of course, there are 27 books in the New Testament. So uh, if you're counting it by section, Christians have four sections. And then, of course, the Mormons come in and say, yeah, I agree with all you guys. And then we also have the Book of Mormon. So how about this? God gave the Jews the Samaritans so that they would understand how the Christians feel about the Jews. So when we look at the Samaritan Pentateuch, we have to recognize that, first of all, this is fairly new as far as Europeans are concerned. It was only in the 17th century that we started becoming aware of the Samaritan Pentateuch from Samaritans in Damascus. Now we have 150 manuscripts. The earliest is from the 9th century, but most of it is from the 15th century. And it's written in a modified Paleo-Hebrew. So what we see here is that the Samaritan Pentateuch, which again is just the first five books of the Bible, also called the Torah, this is just uh, from the medieval period, but it reflects a text that has been transmitted generation by generation from a time before Jesus, when the Samaritans would have already had their Torah in operation. So I want to show you what one of these manuscripts looks like. This is Codex Zerbal. Uh, it's stored at the University of Cambridge, and this is the description that they supply for this manuscript. The Samaritan Pentateuch contains the text of the Torah, the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, written in the Continental Samaritan script, a development from the Paleo-Hebrew script. It is believed to be the earliest extant manuscript of the Samaritan Pentateuch and dates from the early 12th century. The copying of the book itself is the product of five different hands. It was acquired in 1895. So fairly recent as far as manuscripts go, and it was probably written in Nablus, which is a modern name for the ancient Samaritan area that we read about in the Bible. So this codex, Codex Zerbal here, uh, contains this really interesting script. It's, it's very similar to Paleo-Hebrew, but it's been stylized and made uh, a little bit cleaner than the really old stuff. And uh, it's actually the same as the Hebrew that we know from other manuscripts with the square script that I've already showed you pictures of, but it's just different shapes of the letters. And uh, this is really reflecting the antiquity of these scrolls. Now, the Samaritans, as I mentioned before, they didn't believe that Jerusalem was the place where God had put his name. So what they believed instead was that Mount Gerizim was that place. And so we have some interesting differences in the Samaritan Pentateuch to our regular Masoretic Pentateuch. And I want to illustrate this to you by reading a verse from Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 5, which reads, But look only to the site that the Lord your God will choose amidst all your tribes as his habitation to establish his name here. Now there are a few of these verses in Deuteronomy. It's not just this one verse. There's actually a whole collection of them. And over and over again it says, the place where your, the Lord your God will place his name. And we see here where it says, the site that the Lord your God will choose. Now this where it says, will choose. Take note of that. It's future tense. In the Samaritan Pentateuch, it says, has chosen. 
And so that's a significant difference because from a Samaritan point of view, they believe that God chose Mount Gerizim, which is near Shechem. And from a Masoretic point of view, the later Jews, God had not yet chosen it because Jerusalem had not yet been captured. It was actually captured in the time of King David, which was centuries and centuries after the time of Moses. Scholars generally recognize the Samaritan Pentateuch as having changed the Masoretic text on these verses. And they also add in two significant sections, both in the Ten Commandments. One is in Exodus 20, the other is in Deuteronomy 5. Here's the one from Deuteronomy 5. The Samaritan adds in, And when the Lord your God will bring you to the land of the Canaanite, of which you are going to inherit, and you shall set yourself up great stones and lime them with lime, and you shall write on the stones all the words of this law. And when you have passed over the Jordan, you shall set up these stones, which I command you today, in Mount Gerizim. And there you shall build an altar, and you shall sacrifice offerings, and shall eat there, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. This entire paragraph, it does not exist in the Masoretic text. Now there's a very similar one in Deuteronomy 27, but it's been duplicated here in the Samaritan Pentateuch so that it actually forms the tenth of the Ten Commandments. So they count them differently, and, and you, can, you can do that. You can combine the commandments in different ways. Uh, but the Samaritan way of doing it is that the tenth commandment is that you worship God at Mount Gerizim. And that's something that they have held to even to this day. And if you remember back to John chapter 4, when Jesus had the conversation with the Samaritan woman, this was something she brought up to Jesus. As soon as she perceived that he was a religious teacher, that he was a prophet, that he was a man of God, she said, well, our ancestors always worshipped in this mountain here. But you Jews say we're supposed to worship in Jerusalem. What are we supposed to do? So this is very much a, a hot-button issue in the time of Jesus, and it, it remains to this day. And this is sometimes even played out in scholarship, how people treat the Samaritan Pentateuch, which for a long time scholars just considered to be a corruption of the Masoretic text, that the Samaritans took the Masoretic text and just made these changes and you know, then passed it off as being the original. Until the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. The Dead Sea Scrolls really made the, really gave the Samaritan people more credit and authenticity than they had for quite some time. And that is because in the Dead Sea Scrolls, we found support for Samaritan readings in what we call pre-Samaritan manuscripts. Now, these are manuscripts that have actually have nothing to do with the Samaritans, but they agree with the Samaritan Pentateuch over against the Masoretic text in a number of different interesting places but they don't have the Mount Gerizim stuff added in. The ideological changes are absent from the Dead Sea Scroll pre-Samaritan manuscripts. So let's take a look at an example from Genesis chapter 2, verse 2. And I happen to think that this might be, very well be a correction that uh, we, we might see in future English translations of the Bible. In Genesis 2, 2, we read in the Masoretic text, On the seventh day, God finished the work that He had been doing, and he ceased on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. Okay, you notice that twice here it says the seventh day. Kind of repetitive, right? Whereas the Samaritan Pentateuch says, And in the sixth day God completed his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from the work which he had done. Seems to make a little bit more sense. And this is something that was backed up with a manuscript from the Dead Sea Scrolls that agreed with the Samaritan Pentateuch over against the Masoretic text. Which, now look, everyone agrees Masoretic text is magnificent. 
it, it, is, it has the least amount of errors that are absolutely possible to have, okay? We're not talking about huge problems all over the place, but it still has some little bits here and there that could be questioned, and this is one of those little verses, Genesis 2.2. 2. Uh, thus, some distinctive readings in the Samaritan Pentateuch are due to changes the Samaritans added to I for ideological reasons, and then others reflect an ancient Hebrew manuscript tradition that predates the Masoretic text. Uh, now, since we know what the changes are that the Samaritans were likely to introduce, we can subtract those out from the Samaritan Pentateuch and then look at the rest of it as having a lot of value in deciding between differences in the text. Here is a quote from Brotsman and Tully in their book, Old Testament Textual Criticism, about this. When considered in light of the fragmentary pre-Samaritan texts of the Pentateuch found at Qumran, it is clear that the ideological additions to the Samaritan Pentateuch need not cast doubt on its text-critical value. That thin layer of Samaritan adjustments is limited and late, while the other textual features are earlier and witness to ancient variant readings that existed in the last centuries BCE. The Samaritan Pentateuch may preserve some older readings that are independent of the Masoretic text. And you can get your own copy of the Samaritan Pentateuch, English translation in two columns, where you have the Samaritan Pentateuch in one column and then the Masoretic text in the other column, all in English with uh, differences highlighted between them so you can see for yourself what those differences are. Uh, moving on then, we have considered the Samaritan Pentateuch. Now we can move on to the Septuagint. It's by far the most ancient translation that we have to this day. Now, the Greek Old Testament is traditionally abbreviated with uh, the letters LXX, which means 70. And there's a myth that there were like 70 or 72 different translators that all went in together uh, into separate places, translated the entire Torah, and then came back after 72 days and compared, and they all had written the same exact text, and that is where we get the Septuagint from. I don't know anyone that believes that. No scholars believe it. No Bible teachers believe it. Uh, but that's sort of like the, the story that stuck and gave its name to this version of the Bible. That's why it's called the Septuagint, which is just the Latin word for 70. Now, since the 6th century, before Christ, in the time of the prophet Jeremiah, Jews had come to live in Egypt. Uh, this was because there was the Babylonian captivity. A lot of people were taken out of the land, and others decided to find refuge in Egypt. And over time, there developed large Jewish communities, especially in the ancient city of Alexandria in Egypt, where everyone spoke Greek, and they wanted to have a Bible in their own language. So this is how we got the Septuagint, is that the, the Torah was first done uh, probably in the year uh, sometime between 285 and 246 BC during the reign of Ptolemy Philadelphus. Um, and then the rest of the Old Testament was finished within 100 years before Christ. Uh, so this is all BC material done by Jews who were able to read Hebrew and to translate it into Greek. And that's how we get our Septuagint. Now some of these manuscripts have God's name in Paleo-Hebrew. So it's a really fascinating tendency where instead of writing the word Kyrios, which is just the Greek word for Lord, they write God's actual name in. This once again tells you that something about the people who wrote this, 
who translated this and copied this, the scribes, it tells you that they really consider what they're doing to be a sacred task. That God's name, they, they didn't want it to, to translate, they didn't want to find approximate Greek letters that represented the Hebrew, Hebrew letters. They put it in exactly and they gave it that reverence and that awe. And that's something that we see over and over again with these manuscripts, just the, the incredible respect and reverence that they have in doing them. The Septuagint is a complete Old Testament, unlike most of our fragmentary manuscripts. And so for that reason, it's very valuable. It's early. It's before the Masoretic text became the standard. So the Hebrew text beneath the Septuagint was the best and most authoritative, obviously, that the Egyptian Jews could get their hands on. And so it's not just a random manuscript that they used. It would be the best one that they had access to. And then last of all, the Dead Sea Scrolls validated that the source, the Hebrew source the Septuagint used, was a legitimate minority Hebrew tradition alongside the Masoretic text. For a long time, scholars had looked at the Septuagint, and here's, here's my Septuagint right here. You can see it's a nice hardbound copy here, and you've got the Greek text and then the English next to it. It's the version from Alfred Rolfs with a translation by Lancelot Brenton from 1851. It's the Septuagint that you would find online if you were looking for something free. <laughs> it's not copyrighted. Uh, or if you're looking for something cheap in print, uh, this is the one that you would typically get right here. Yeah, this Septuagint is something that basically scholars look down upon and say, oh, well, this is just a translation, it's, it's not as good as the Hebrew Masoretic text, until the Dead Sea Scrolls. See, once the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, it said, okay, there were Hebrew sources that agree with the Septuagint over the Masoretic text that later developed. So that showed us that it wasn't just sloppy translating, it was a different text that they were using than the Masoretic text. So the Septuagint reflects what we might call an Egyptian text uh, whereas the Masoretic text uh, reflects a Babylonian or Palestinian text, depending on how you want to slice things up. We also have a new English translation for those of you who would like to get a nice new modern English translation done in 2007. This is the NETS, the New English Translation of the Septuagint, an essential resource for biblical studies. And you can see that it is uh, very nicely done, very nicely laid out. That's the Septuagint in a nutshell. There's a lot more I could say about it. We could talk about the different sources we have for the Septuagint, the different manuscripts behind it, but I fear that you will not be interested in hearing all that detail. So let's, let's move on to the Aramaic Targums. They are from the time of the Babylonian exile and forward because that's when the Jewish people learned to speak Aramaic. Now before that they spoke Hebrew and certainly after that they speak Hebrew as well, but over time, Aramaic in the region came to be the lingua franca, the dominating language of trade. And uh, over time, synagogue services would have to be done in two languages. So there would be a reading in Hebrew, and this is actually how it's done to this day. You have the reading in Hebrew, even here in New York, and then followed by a translation into the language of the people. So they always have the Hebrew, which is interesting. They always preserve the Hebrew. And there, there will be some people who can hear it, can understand it, and there are correctors. I mentioned this already. But then you also have the vast majority of the people who need to hear it in their own language. So this is 
interesting that this was done way back then when they read it in Hebrew and then Aramaic, which is a very similar language, like a sister language to it. Uh, but then over time, they would write down the translation, and those are the Targums. And they're translated into Aramaic. But what's interesting about the Targums is that they do add in some extra material, right? So when they translate the Hebrew into Aramaic, it's, it's usually very literal. But then they'll add in expansions and give explanations for how they interpret the Hebrew Bible. Here's a slide of Targum Onkelos, Exodus in Hebrew with an Aramaic translation. In the vast majority of their passages, Paul Flesher and Bruce Chilton write in their book on the Targums, Targums present a translation that recreates anywhere from 85 to 100 percent of the original's linguistic information. In particular, it's grammatical information. Additions range from a few words to a phrase or sentence to a whole paragraph or more. Atargum's composers usually locate the addition within the text in a way that maintains the text flow and that provides no obvious indication that an addition has been made. So they didn't use quote marks or anything like that. They would add some material in and it just looks like more Bible. But we know from looking at the Hebrew manuscripts that it's not more Bible, it's their interpretation of what they think the Bible says. So let me give you a really interesting example from Genesis 4.8. And Cain said to Abel, his brother, let us go out to the field. And when they were in the field, Cain rose against Abel, his brother, and killed him. It's very simple over here, right? Very simple description. We don't have any idea as to why Cain killed Abel, what they argued about. However, in the Targum Neophyte, we read, And Cain said to Abel, his brother, Come, let the two of us go out into the open field. And when the two of them had gone out into the open field, Cain answered and said to Abel, I perceive that the world was not created by mercy, and that it is not being conducted according to the fruits of good words, and that there is favoritism in judgment. Why was your offering received favorably, and my offering was not received favorably from me? Abel answered and said to Cain, I perceive that the world was created by mercy, and that it is being conducted according to the fruits of good words. And because my works were better than yours, my offering was received from me favorably, and yours was not received favorably from you. Cain answered, this is interesting, huh? Cain answered and said to Abel, there is no judgment, there is no judge, there is no other world. Sounds like the first atheist, right? There is no giving of good reward to the just, nor is vengeance exacted of the wicked. Abel answered and said to Cain, there is judgment, there is a judge, and there is another world. And there is a giving of good reward to the just, and vengeance is exacted of the wicked in the world to come. Concerning this matter, the two of them were disputing in the open field, and Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. So <laughs> you can see how much of an expansion we just got there. I mean, yes, it's the same as the biblical text, but then with this huge explanation right in the middle of it. Chilton and Flesher write, A targum is a translation that combines a highly literal rendering of the original text with material added into the translation in a seamless manner. Exodus 34:26 gives us another example of this where the Masoretic text says, The first fruits of thy land thou shalt bring to the house of the Lord thy God. Thou shalt not boil a kid in his mother's milk. Especially that little part at the end here where it says, Thou shalt not boil a kid in his mother's milk. Compare that with Targum Neophyte, where it says, The beginning of the first fruits of your land you shall bring to the sanctuary of the Lord your God. My people, children of Israel, you shall not boil, and you shall not eat flesh 
with milk mixed together. Let my anger be kindled against you, and we boil your bundled wheat and the wheat and the straw mixed together. Uh, so a little bit of an expansion there, but we can see on the one side here, it just says don't boil a goat in its mother's milk. On the other side, it says that, but then it also adds in, and you shall not eat flesh with milk mixed in. And this is why it's so hard to get a cheeseburger in Israel. Because uh, you don't want to have dairy with meat if you're keeping kosher. And so the Aramaic Targum added in that interpretation for how they think about the Hebrew text right in line with it. So just as a way of looking at this a little further, we have two kinds of Targums. There's the Palestinian, which comes from the 2nd and 3rd centuries AD. Uh, we have the Targum Neophyte in this collection, the Fragment Targum, and 17 more from the Cairo Geniza. But then we also have the Babylonian Targums from the 200 years before Christ to 200 years after, and that includes Targum Onkelos, Targum Pseudo-Jonathan, and Targum Jonathan. These are all very important manuscripts that we can use to compare against what Scripture says to see if there are any significant differences. The Targums tend to agree with the Masoretic text whenever they're quoting it. So they're not necessarily all that significant for variant readings, although sometimes you get a little bit there. But they are another source of how we can understand or where we can derive our Old Testament from, our Hebrew Bible, and they are used in the process of comparing manuscripts to each other. So I wanted you to be aware of them. Let's move on to our second to last topic, which is the Syriac Peshitta. Uh, the Syriac Peshitta is uh, really the entire Bible. It's not just the Old Testament. It's the Old Testament and the New Testament. So therefore, it must have come from Christians, not from Jews. And the word Peshitta just means simple or obvious. This is a simple translation of the Bible into the language that the common person would understand. Probably done uh, about 100 years after Christ to maybe 200 years after. This is from the National Library of Israel. The manuscript presented here, which includes the books of the latter prophets, Isaiah, the Twelve, Jeremiah, Lamentations, and Ezekiel, is one of the earliest copies of the Peshitta in the world. It was written in classic Syriac script, Estrangelo, on parchment in the 9th century, apparently in the city of Edessa in the southeast Turkey, known as Urfa. Uh, but this Estrangelo script is very similar almost to a cursive, and uh, it, it really relates much more to Arabic than it does to the square boxy letters of uh, the previous Aramaic. So definitely a really interesting Bible, the Syriac Peshitta. And since it is a translation, not of the Septuagint, but of a Hebrew source, it can reflect back on what that original source said. But that Hebrew source is actually very close to the Masoretic text, so it's not going to give us big differences between what we already knew the Masoretic text had. So it's, it's contribution to understanding what the Old Testament is, is is somewhat limited, but it is still something that scholars use in that quest. Moving on then from the Syriac Peshitta, we want to take a look at the Latin Vulgate now. This was a translation done by Jerome, a Christian, between the year 390 and 405 AD. So the word Vulgate, the vulgar tongue, is just the common tongue of the people that didn't, didn't read or speak Hebrew or Greek anymore. And what's so interesting about the Vulgate is that Jerome translated not from the Greek, which the church had been accustomed to for so long for the Old Testament, uh, but translated right from the Hebrew. And he had to go to the land of Israel and learn Hebrew from uh, the Jews so that he could do this. And it was very controversial in his time. But as it turns out, he did a 
pretty accurate translation of the Hebrew. So sometimes what scholars will do is they'll look at the Vulgate and see how it translated something from its Hebrew source in their quest to determine what uh, manuscripts and what variations are correct in this or that verse of the Old Testament. All right, so if we group all these things together, we get what Emmanuel Tove calls the MT plus group. The Masoretic text that we've already talked about in a previous episode, it also includes the Aramaic Targums, the Syriac Peshitta, and the Latin Vulgate. That's what he calls the MT plus, so this grouping of texts. Then we have the Samaritan group of texts, which includes, we've got about 150 Samaritan Pentateuch manuscripts, as well as some from the Dead Sea Scrolls that agree with those. And then, last of all, we have the Septuagint group, which includes a number of different manuscripts of the Septuagint and its subsequent revisions, and then also some Dead Sea Scrolls in Hebrew that agree with the Septuagint. Let's say you're looking at a verse in the Old Testament, and you want to ask the question, what reading is correct? We have this manuscript here and that one there, and they have a difference between them. How do I figure out which one is correct? And that question we are going to delve into and attempt an answer on next time. All right, well, that brings this lecture to a conclusion. Just so you know, the show notes has a number of the books I referred to in this episode with links so that you can get them if you're interested in further study. If you'd like to make a comment on today's post or ask a question, come on over to restitutio.org and you'll be able to find episode 332, Bible Part 3 on Samaritan Pentateuch and Ancient Translations, and would love to hear back from you if you have any questions or comments on this subject. Also, if you haven't yet, uh, consider writing a review for Restitutio in whatever podcast service that you use to listen to this. That really does help people find us, and I certainly do appreciate it. If you'd like to support Restitutio, you can do that on our website, restitutio.org. That's it for now. We'll see you next time, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.